CJSW.com and click on the podcast tab or go to the CJSW app and use the talk filter when you search. The darling this season in war spending is the hypersonic missile. They are being designed so that artificial intelligence or AI will eventually do most of the thinking to pull the trigger. Diplomacy is not part of the algorithm. It is not programmed in. No one ever factored into the equation what we have now, that one day algorithms would be making the decisions. Algorithms couldn't give a damn about mutual assured destruction or whether the planet is blown up to smithereens. This isn't an arms race. It's a suicide race. That's Kuhan Pakmander, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Kuhan Pakmander on arms race equals suicide race. The Oppenheimer movie and the Ukraine war have brought much-needed attention to the possibility of terminal war. The arms race will end the human race. To call nukes weapons of mass destruction comes nowhere near describing the level of devastation that their use would result in. To be clear, these are weapons of annihilation that would make Hiroshima and Nagasaki look trivial. And how are our great leaders addressing this existential threat? Instead of advocating universal nuclear disarmament, Countries, led by the United States, are spending billions to upgrade them. That's a good definition of insanity. It's nothing short of a miracle that nuclear war, the ending of the planet, has not happened. Can our luck last forever? The odds and logic say no. If we don't reverse the insane arms race, we will be committing suicide. Our guest today is Kuhan Pakmander. She's a journalist, filmmaker, author, and peace and environmental activist. She serves on the boards of World Beyond War and the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. Her articles appear in The Nation, The Progressive, Foreign Policy in Focus, and other publications. She spoke at the Albuquerque Center for Peace and Justice on June 25, 2023. And now... Kuhan Pakmander. In the name of the environment, the Biden administration has disingenuously committed the U.S. military to all electric vehicles and transitioning to biofuels for all its trucks, aircraft, and ships. Are we supposed to feel better now that World War III will be green? So what does not figure into their climate calculus is that Biden's plan will not stop the Pentagon from decimating populations of whales and dolphins or killing coral reefs and coastal ecosystems to build bases. And our planet's oxygen supply is inextricably linked to the health of marine ecosystems. You see, when coral reefs, coastal ecosystems, and rainforests are killed, It sets off a cascade of systems failures. Corals, plankton, algae, 
trees and the soil biome that would otherwise be capturing carbon and producing oxygen are destroyed. But as far as the Pentagon is concerned, the ecocide will go on. So, so what if the vehicles are electric and the ships run on biofuels? As long as the military's mission is to dominate earth, sky, sea, and the heavens, biofuels and electric vehicles will not stop the Pentagon from crushing the planet's inherent abilities to regenerate itself in the face of climate catastrophe. To make matters worse, the military is undergoing a little-known paradigm shift in the way war is waged. It requires, among other things, a series of so-called smart grids to be installed that will enclose the entire planet with 5G and sonar. Earthbound mission control centers are moving into space, into the cloud. The military base, housing thousands of troops and armed with tanks and machine guns, like what we saw in Afghanistan, it's now passé, which may explain why the U.S. withdrew from that old-school war so hastily and without finesse. The military base is being replaced by what has been called a high-speed kill web. It uses information as the primary weapon of war. It will enable empire to summon at once unmanned military forces to rain terror down on any spot in the world. A swarm of drones, hypersonic missiles, submarine torpedoes and bombers, and all with the ease of calling an Uber. This is why demonizing China has been so essential. Only a foe as formidable and distant as China would justify the hyper-costly infrastructure overhaul required. War with China, and now with Russia, requires the U.S. to pour far more resources into military fantasies than what would be required by the usual bombing of a small third-world country. The high-tech profits will make the money made by Halliburton during 20 years in Afghanistan look like peanuts. Pacific archipelagos have been designated by war planners as either first island chain, second island chain, or third island chain in geographic relation to China. These island chains run from the far north to the far south of the equator. If the Pacific were a football field, think of these as lines of scrimmage. These island chains have been described as a wall, a barrier to be breached by an attacker or strengthened by a defender. They are seen as springboards, potential bases for operations to attack or invade others in the region. So in a territorial sense, they are benchmarks marking the extent of a nation's influence. The first island chain is closest to China. It starts at Jeju Island, the jewel of Korea, 300 miles from Beijing. Jeju has been a center of controversy for a decade and a half because of a Navy base that was built in a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The base was completed in 2015, and its ships are equipped with Aegis missiles pointed at China. Rare and endangered corals were dredged to build the base despite years of ferocious protests. These waters were once home 
of the famous Henyo, the free diving ladies, who have recently reported that the corals, abalone, and once biodiverse ecosystem are dying due to base operations. Following the archipelago southward are the Japanese-controlled Nansei Islands, also called the Ryukyu Islands. With the exception of Okinawa, these islands were until very recently extremely untouched. They were remote fishing islands, and now they're home to five missile deployment and surveillance facilities, all calibrated to challenge China. The most notorious island in the Nansei archipelago is Okinawa, where residents have been protesting U.S. military presence since 1970. The most recent outrage has been the use of soil mixed with the bones of both Okinawan ancestors and fallen U.S. soldiers as landfill for new base construction at Henoko. And on nearby Ishigaki, local citizens have been furiously protesting the dismantling of Article 9 in Japan's constitution, which outlaws war. Dismantling Article 9 will decriminalize the deployment of weapons of mass destruction on these islands. On the exquisite island of Yonaguni, only 99 miles from Taiwan, the island's endemic wild ponies, the Yonaguni ponies, lost their watering hole when a radar tracking station was built. Yonaguni residents are outraged. Further south, in the Philippines, the U.S. signed a deal a few months ago to lease four bases there. This is the first U.S. basing in the Philippines since 1992, when the Philippines Congress evicted the U.S. military after a century of colonial presence and its concomitant injustices onto the second island chain. The second island chain is found to the east, roughly halfway to Hawaii. It is comprised of Guam and the rest of the Mariana Archipelago, plus other Micronesian islands. One million square miles of waters surrounding the Marianas have, been, have become the ultimate playground of doom, where biodiverse ecosystems are subjected to endless torrents of bombs, bullets, shells, sonar, underwater torpedoes, landmines, missiles, and more. The area is larger than the entire nation of India. This in the most cetacean-diverse spot in the Pacific. Since 1997, the tiny uninhabited island of Farallon de Medinitsa in the Marianas has been used for bombing practice. It has been a favorite traditional fishing spot and is still a migratory bird stopover, albeit a very deadly one. The Navy drops 6,000 bombs per year on this island. To accommodate the troops that will be rotated through Guam, an original growth Limestone forest in Guam was raised to build a base. 500 hectares were bulldozed, including the archaeological site of an entire village. The remains of 3,000 bodies were dug up and put in cardboard boxes to be stored in various offices around the island. The most beautiful, pristine part of the island has been usurped for live fire war training and to build this base. Rather than move on to the third island chain, or Hawaii, I'm going to jump to describing the infrastructure for unmanned space-based warfare. 
21st century infrastructure will essentially be a multi-dimensional grid in space and in the sea, as well as a grid of thousands of satellites in the heavens. It also includes an ambitious grid of island mini-bases that are comprised of missile deployment facilities, satellite launch pads, radar tracking stations, aircraft carrier ports, live fire ranges on land and at sea, and other facilities. And on the surface of the ocean, it is a grid of 5G devices. Underwater, it is a grid of sonar and radar devices, still in the research and development phase. Here is a drone loaded with sono buoys or sonar devices that will be dropped into the ocean. They will transmit whale-killing sonar signals to 5G sensors on the ocean surface. The 5G sensors will then relay the signal to receivers located either in satellites or on land or on ships. Just to give you an idea of how lethal sonar is to whales, when, when low-frequency sonar low-frequency active sonar is activated in Hawaii. It has made the sperm whales all the way in Australia stop eating for two days. This is how fatally disruptive sonar is to whales and dolphins. It is equally detrimental for mating, birthing, hunting, and voyaging. Saturating the ocean with sonar will kill our oceans. Nevertheless, the marine holocaust plan is being called the Smart Ocean. The idea is to enclose the entire planet with 5G sonar and lasers in order to create a comprehensive electromagnetic cocoon in which to track and operate missiles and unmanned robot vehicles anywhere in the air, in space, on the ground or underwater, anywhere, anywhere, anywhere on the globe. Not an inch will be spared as the planet is transformed into a gigantic three-dimensional chessboard. It is part of a master plan called the Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2. At the heart of the JADC2 is a data storage cloud called the JWCC, or Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability. On December 7, 2022, the Pentagon awarded a $9 billion contract to Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and Oracle. Comforting household names. The inaugural exercises to help develop this new gridded warfare were completed in the summer of 2021 in Hawaii. The new technology linked Navy and Marine Corps sea, air, land, space, and cyber weapons spanning 17 time zones. Troops practiced blowing lots of things up in Hawaii's marine habitats by clicking on their laptops at Pearl Harbor. So... The satellite smart ocean infrastructure will greatly accelerate the ease with which the U.S. and its allies will be able to conduct war games. It will enable military exercises to take place in synchronicity over vast expanses of the planet. Currently, naval exercises are the cause of tens of thousands of whale and dolphin deaths per year. Pentagon documents have projected the number of injuries and deaths caused by war practice around the Mariana Islands alone to be around 150,000 for the 12-year period between 2015 and 2027. They state that to project a number of injuries of deaths of whales and dolphins in the Gulf of Alaska would be over 182,000 over five years. 
Because there are hundreds of naval exercises throughout the Indo-Pacific every year, we can easily extrapolate that the number of fatally injured whales and dolphins would be around 100,000 per year. As we transition to space-based warfare, which will accelerate and proliferate all aspects of war-making, we can expect those cetacean fatalities to rise. Here are reefs of the Western Pacific, a part of the world that is dense with the most biodiverse reefs on the planet. It's home to the Coral Triangle. Corals are being killed by all these war games, which are not games at all to life in the sea. The detonations are real and continual. The marine massacres are real and continual. Here's a snapshot of the brinkmanship taking place last April in the Western Pacific. As congested as these death armadas appear, they will be dwarfed by the number of ships and expanded scope and frequencies of military exercises in the near future. When speaking about joint war exercises with other countries, military officials often use the term interoperability. Interoperability means the ability for militaries from different countries to work together on the same communication system and with the same culture, procedures, commands, and compatible equipment. This is like many countries all at once playing the same video game, and it's designed by one country, the U.S. But the only difference is it's not a video game. The detonations are real. The explosions are real. In order to achieve interoperability, armies from various countries conduct war exercises with each other. Each year, new weapons are rolled out by the manufacturers as if they were Gucci fashion or Apple iPhones. So each year, the armies have to practice on that season's new weapons to master them. It's an endless cycle of war practice, even during peacetime. Further, interoperability is actually a very nice way of saying colonized because the objectives, the culture, the language, the algorithms are all determined by the U.S. When a country buys arms from the U.S., these weapons are calibrated to be compatible with the larger system and agenda determined by the U.S. It's like buying an Apple versus a PC. The consumer is tied to a certain standard of compatibility. According to the 2019 Indo-Pacific Strategy Report, the, quote, tool of first resort in strengthening alliances and attracting new partners, end quote, is foreign military sales, weapons sales. In line with this philosophy, weapons exports have increased dramatically in recent years with the prospect of war with China on the horizon. The oceans, I'm going to talk about the oceans now and why whales are so important to the oceans. The oceans sequester an astonishing 2 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide per year. That is nearly double the 1.2 billion metric tons of carbon that was emitted by the U.S. military between 2001 and 2017. 16 years worth of carbon emitted by the U.S. military, the entire military, is only about just less than half of all of the carbon sequestered by the oceans in one year. This comparison puts into perspective how essential ocean health is to the survival of all life on Earth. Much of this carbon sequestration is due to the presence of whales. Whales are the foundation of ecological resilience of the ocean. As such, 
They are the fundamental species to mitigate or delay climate catastrophe due to their symbiotic relationship with phytoplankton. Marine biologist Asha DeVos has provided us with much research on how whales do this. You see, as whales dive to the depths to feed and come up to the surface to breathe, they actually release enormous fecal plumes, which is nutrients for all sea life. This is called whale pump by scientists, and it brings essential nutrients from the depths to the surface waters and throughout all the oceans because of the great distances that the whales swim. They stimulate the growth of phytoplankton that forms the base of all marine food chains. Because of phytoplankton photosynthesis, the oceans generate more oxygen than all the rainforests of the world combined. This is compounded by the fact that due to climate change, forests have begun emitting more carbon than they're capturing. In fact, 10 UNESCO World Heritage Site forests are releasing more carbon than they are absorbing. This alarming development places ever more importance on our oceans to function as the lungs of the planet. The delusionary need for perpetual year-round military practice in our oceans is one of the most ecocidal developments of modern culture. We essentially have non-stop war now taking place in our oceans, even with no war officially being waged. But war is being waged, that is, a war on all the living spirits that populate the undersea community and enable our oceans to support life on Earth, the whales, dolphins, turtles, crabs, seahorses, jellyfish, algaes and seaweeds, eels, plankton, manta rays, and coral. The U.S. is rapidly organizing its vision of the global economy around weapon sales and militarism and war games. It seems to think that it can do this while simultaneously addressing the climate crisis. This is not possible. You cannot do both. A weaponized Pacific is a dead Pacific, and a dead Pacific is a dead planet. Save the whales, save the planet. There has never, ever been a more urgent time to throw down swords and cooperate with one another. So that is the first part of my talk tonight. And the next part, I'm going to talk about how we frame the world we live in that needs to be framed in a different way because what we're doing, it's not working. So I've been thinking a lot about different ways of communicating our world so that maybe we can all come together and cooperate. According to the doomsday clock, the time now is 90 seconds to midnight, the closest humanity has ever been to the end of the world. The experts at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists who set the doomsday clock do so by looking at a number of trends. They look at nuclear stockpiling, carbon emissions, and the rate that the sea levels are rising. The scientists also assess factors like the current push to produce plutonium pits, the push to develop more AI-driven missiles and other unmanned weapons, and the war raging around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. They consider how air travel has increased by 52% over last year at this time, and that it is predicted we will easily cross the 1.5 degree climate threshold 
in a brief decade or less. They watch as Biden passes laws to allow more drilling for oil. They consider how the planet is losing its capacity to regenerate itself in the face of climate catastrophe because our oceans are being killed by ever-increasing overfishing, deep-sea mining, plastic pollution, coral bleaching, and the military activities like war games, like the uh, installation of the underwater military infrastructure. Taken all together, this multidimensional convergence of a litany of kamikaze behaviors is upping the odds of Armageddon so exponentially that it makes the doomsday clock seem quaint, even obsolete. Things have never looked so dire. Modern civilization is hurtling toward cataclysm on every front all at once. And yet, we seem to be stuck in this intractable holding pattern. Our elected officials keep making the wrong decisions. The media keep reporting in ways that polarize. Education is bankrupt. It's all happening with such impeccable synchronicity that it seems like it's part of some grand diabolical scheme to kill us all. But is it? Who would be responsible? Would it be the military-industrial complex? Or would it be the Mickey Mat, the military-industrial-congressional-intelligence-media-academic-think-tank complex? Or is it just capitalism itself? Who or what is behind it? This is where Moloch comes in. Moloch is an ancient entity first cited in Leviticus. Allen Ginsberg reinterpreted Moloch in his epic poem, Howl. This is Allen Ginsberg reading the Moloch section from his poem, Howl. What sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? Moloch, solitude, filth, ugliness, ash cans and unobtainable dollars, children screaming under stairways, boys sobbing in armies, old men weeping in the parks. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch, Moloch the loveless, mental Moloch, Moloch the heavy judger of men, Moloch the incomprehensible prison, Moloch the crossbone soulless jailhouse and congress of sorrows, Moloch whose buildings are judgment, Moloch the vast stone of war, Moloch the stunned government, Moloch whose mind is pure machinery, Moloch whose blood is running money, Moloch whose fingers are ten armies, Moloch whose breast is a cannibal dynamo, Moloch whose ear is a smoking tomb, Moloch whose eyes are a thousand blind windows, Moloch whose skyscrapers stand in the long streets like endless Jehovah's, Moloch whose factories dream and croak in the fog, Moloch whose smokestacks and antennae crown the cities, Moloch whose love is endless oil and stone, Moloch whose soul is electricity and banks, Moloch whose poverty is the specter of genius, Moloch 
whose fate is a cloud of sexless hydrogen. Moloch, whose name is the mind. Moloch, in whom I sit lonely. Moloch, in whom I dream angels. Crazy in Moloch, lack love and manless in Moloch. Moloch, who entered my soul early. Moloch, in whom I am a consciousness without a body. Moloch, who frightens me out of my natural ecstasy. Moloch, whom I abandon. Wake up in Moloch, light streams out of the sky. Moloch, Moloch, robot apartments, invisible suburbs, skeleton treasuries, blind capitals, demonic industries, spectral nations, invincible madhouse, monstrous bombs. They broke their backs lifting Moloch to heaven. Pavements, trees, radios, tons, lifting the city to heaven which exists and is everywhere about us. Visions, omens, hallucinations, miracles, ecstasies, gone down the American river. Dreams, adorations, religions, the whole boatload of sensitive breakthroughs over the river. Flips and crucifixions gone down the flood. Highs, epiphanies, despairs, ten years animal screams and suicides. Minds, new loves, mad generation, down on the rocks of time. Real holy laughter in the river. They saw it all. The wild eyes, the holy yells. They bade farewell. They jumped off the roof to salute, waving, carrying flowers down to the river, into the street. That was Allen Ginsberg reading part two of Howl in Chicago on January 29th, 1959. Stay tuned for Kuhan Pakmander, Arms Race Equals Suicide Race. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Now, Ginsburg's interpretation of Moloch has been repurposed by the philosopher Scott Alexander in his seminal essay, Meditations on Moloch. It describes the phenomenon now taking place in which global civilization seems trapped in a feverish race to annihilation. Nobody wants it, but nobody can stop it. Certain people, including a subset of artificial intelligence researchers of all people, are calling Moloch the prevailing god of our era. And like any god, Moloch is both hidden and in plain sight. Once you train your eyes to see him, you see him everywhere. The god Moloch is the god that knows there is a part of the human lizard brain that cannot resist competition. The god Moloch exploits this human weakness by fixing systems of competition in place so seemingly rigidly that the players will do anything to win, no matter if the game itself kills them. Everybody hates the game, but nobody can stop playing. 
Moloch waves his left hand and the Ukrainians will fight Russia to the death for their sovereignty, even risking nuclear winter. And Moloch waves his right hand and Russia will not stop fighting until it achieves what it perceives to be territorial integrity. Strategic escalation ensues and Moloch feasts on mutually assured destruction. Moloch is competition gone toxic. Another example of Moloch can be seen when environmental regulations are not enforced. Imagine a river protected by environmental laws. As long as the companies operating alongside that river comply with the laws, there's no problem. But if one company begins dumping into the river, then that company is able to externalize the cost of protecting the river and gains a competitive edge over the non-polluting companies. So the polluters' profits grow in comparison to the other companies to the point where it can eventually push the other companies out of business. So in order to compete, the other companies start polluting as well. Soon, there's a race to the bottom, and all the companies are polluting, and no one has a competitive edge anymore. Eventually, everyone gets cancer and dies due to drinking the toxic water from the river that they all polluted. Everybody loses. Long-term well-being was sacrificed for short-term competition. This is Moloch. Whenever we have an incentive structure that promotes individual behavior over collective behavior, we see these kinds of destructive situations often arise. It's not something that's in our system. It's how our system works. Now more than ever, we need cooperation. We need mutual understanding. I'm hoping that Moloch might build a language around its archetype and might, so people can start to understand each other, talk to each other about these existentially dire issues and come together to talk about very important topics that are now the fulcrum of polarization through our media. Moloch thrives in the internet as well, most visibly on the social media platforms. In the social media world, reader response is measured in clicks. The more clicks, the more money is made. Studies conclusively show that rage is the emotional response that garners the most clicks. And for this reason, Facebook is rife with posts that elicit rage because this is how everyone individually competes with everyone else for viewer attention. The price that everyone pays is a polarized society, a nation on the brink of civil war, and a world on the brink of World War III. Nobody wants the end of the world, but these days, how else can you get your message across? All we can do is get more clicks than the other guy, and even if it means the collapse of civilization and the planet. The most classic Moloch scenario is the arms race. Every time a war planner lobbies Congress on why tens of billions more dollars are needed to develop these weapons of mass destruction, the only justification they can ever drum up is to say, well, it's because we've got to keep up with China and Russia. That's Moloch in a nutshell. But we don't want to put all of our money into weapons of mass destruction, and neither does China, and neither does Russia, and neither does North Korea. People want... To res well, we in America need to resurrect our collapsed systems of education, of health care, of infrastructure. 
But we're told by NPR and Fox News and CNN and the Democrats and the Republicans and the think tanks that we can't ever trust Russia or China. We can't ever trust Putin or Xi. We have no choice. We have to pour tens of billions of dollars each year into developing these weapons of mass destruction, into developing more nuclear bombs, and into developing more artificial intelligence or AI. So the small-minded Congress members once again firehose money into endless war. Apparently it's worth it to them even if it does move the doomsday clock that much further to the end of the world. The inability to collectively think outside Moloch's rigid box of competition keeps society barreling toward Armageddon. And speaking of weapons, the darling this season in war spending is the hypersonic missile. What's most settling about hypersonics and actually all unmanned warfare is that they're being designed so that artificial intelligence or AI will eventually do most of the thinking to pull the trigger. Because the time between launch and strike of an incoming missile could be as brief as six minutes, it's believed that humans would be prone to panic within such a duration of time, whereas machines would not. The rational, emotionless thought processing required during such a moment of urgency is thought to be best handled by machines. Keep in mind, all these hypersonic missiles are nuclear capable. So as machine decision-making accelerates warfare, it's plain to see how conflict could easily escalate. Compressed time and space creates the incentive for each side to strike first and strike fast in a perceived crisis. This is a recipe for crisis instability. Even if neither party initially planned to strike first, the accelerated dynamic inherent in an AI-driven scenario forces the likelihood of mutually assured destruction, especially because AI is programmed only in the the context of Moloch, of competition. Diplomacy is not part of the algorithm. It is not programmed in. In the past, development and production of nukes was predicated on the idea that mutually assured destruction would keep us safe as a deterrent. It would stop rational leaders of superpowers from escalating a war that would end in the destruction of both countries. No one ever factored into the equation what we have now, that one day algorithms would be making the decisions. Algorithms couldn't give a damn about mutual assured destruction or whether the planet is blown up to smithereens. This isn't an arms race. It's a suicide race. Even so, the U.S. is spending a trillion dollars to expand nuclear weapon capacity and simultaneously pouring as much money, if not more, into transitioning its military into one that is for the most part unmanned and AI-driven. These AI weapons are being fast-tracked into existence. And once the highly advanced AI is developed for the military, we'll see it spun off into the consumer market in functions that will put millions of workers out of a job. Digital technology has always been an inequity accelerator. The more digital technology is developed, the wider the gap between rich and poor 
the greater the poverty. We've all seen this in the last 20 years. The values of Moloch are inherent in digital technology because they are the same as the values of the Pentagon from which digital technology emerged. So how do we break out of Moloch's grip? That is the $64 billion question. Law professor Mary Wood points out, and I thought this was interesting the way she framed it, that how the world around us is framed is, in, in a narrative, can either oppress and subdue or empower and mobilize. Do you think the Moloch framing is useful in communicating to others or to yourselves um, how systems of competition work and affect us and that maybe they're no longer useful? My hope is that by examining our predicament from this God's eye view of Moloch, a, a space might open up in which our ego can hopefully fall away and all parties involved are able to see new ways of problem solving through cooperation. We've got to put the brakes on this runaway train. I would love to hear your thoughts, and I'd like to open it up for discussion. Thank you so much. Well, you've given me a lot to think about, and the, the point of needing to reframe is the bottom line. But we need to help others reframe. Back many years ago, back in the early 1980s, I volunteered with a group out of Kenya called Beyond War. And they were reframing. They were trying to reframe. And a lot of the concepts that I, that I heard in the 1980s, we are one, you know, everything that you would already know was picked up in general discussion. But it wasn't enough to move us off of the Moloch. So I'm wondering what more reframing has to occur in order to get us to move off of Moloch. Well, in a way, we moved off a lot in the 80s because that's when the Berlin Wall came down. That's when Reagan and Gorbachev signed agreements. That's um, the precursor to Clinton closing bases. So maybe it did work. And then Moloch emerged, you know, like a bad case of herpes. <laughs> yes, in the back. I'm wondering if there isn't a flip side to it, too. I mean, the things that you're saying are about how we get invisibilized, I think is the term that you used. In, um, what I'm seeing is that, you know, here we are in the belly of the beast. Mm-hmm. We're in the belly of Moloch. It, capitalism and competition personified to the utmost and we can see that the young people that are around us I have two teens at home you know people who like have succeeded according to the American dream and I'm putting that in quotation marks there's a discontent it's not it's there's a unfulfilled feeling there's a jadedness that pervades our entire culture and it takes a like one person or two people standing up with courage and you see people crawling out of the woodwork to join in with that effort. There's such a discontent that's permeating that as soon as people hear the seed of the word that you're saying or something else, 
that, you know, I think it gets undermined very easily. So, you know, I don't want to be overly optimistic, but I, I do want to point out that I think that a lot of that is going on, and, and I think we can all feel that especially here in the belly of, I, I know I'm saying it wrong. Moloch. Moloch, yes. Yeah. I've got the, the consonants no, I, all mixed I, up. No, I agree with you. The capacity for cooperation is such a natural, instinctive thing for us. All you need to do, one person does it and everybody gloms on. I, I completely agree. And well, we just need more people doing it, and I don't think that's going to be too hard to achieve. But the, the, I think the thing that people need to be made aware is the revolution will not be on social media. It will not be on the Internet. It will be holding hands with our brothers and sisters and talking and discussing and singing and dancing. When Dennis Kucinich was in Congress, there was an effort to establish a U.S. Department of Peace. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just seeking peace on the international level, but uh, in our states and cities and uh, schools, neighborhoods, homes, working on peace everywhere. And here in New Mexico, there was an effort to establish a state department modeled after that national proposal. I think we need to get back to that and work hard at trying to achieve that. Mm -hmm. That um, definitely reframes it, doesn't it? Yes. The other thing I'd like to share, I served in a uh, Titan ICBM missile complex mm -hmm. during the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis. You're not that and, old. <laughs> I'm, I'm 80. <laughs> I think I was 22 at that time. But we waited for the order. We expected to launch those horrible missiles. Back then, I wouldn't have hesitated to follow orders. I would have done my job and helped launch those horrible missiles. Now, I cringe to think that the decision may be made by artificial intelligence because that's a situation where if AI was in, in charge, right. making the decisions... We wouldn't be here today. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But fortunately, President Kennedy and um, President Khrushchev talked it out. They didn't take the advice of their advisors. They were getting advice to do it, to go ahead and, and launch. If it was AI, more than likely that decision would have been made to launch. Yeah. To get to cooperation, Netta Crawford, who's at the Cost of War Project at Brown, she wrote a great book called, what is it, Pentagon Climate Change and War. And one of the things she talks about toward the conclusion is that the Pentagon assumes that we're going to have climate-caused wars. They feel like climate change is going to cause unstable governance in climate-vulnerable countries, global south mainly, and they're, they're considering that it's inevitable, that mass migrations of people and competition over the most basic resources will bring war. And so they, they've been preparing for this for years. But Netta Crawford points out that in times of scarcity, in times of crisis, 
historically people often cooperate, mm. you know, often cooperate, and we're just we're caught in this web. And I, I, I appreciate all of your comments on technology. I'm so tired of clicktivism. <laughs> I am so sick of it. <laughs> and uh, it just it's not where the revolution is at for sure. And I'm I'm really inspired a lot by indigenous communities who don't have this mindset of competition kind of embedded into them from day one, you know. And indigenous communities and some of the youth groups now around climate really inspire me too. So thank that you remi- so much. Yeah, thank you. That reminds your story reminds me of um, in the early 90s, I was living on Kauai and we had a terrible, terrible hurricane called Hurricane Iniki slammed us. We happened to be living in the Hawaii equivalent of a reservation called Hawaiian Homelands. It, it was amazing. After the hurricane, there was no electricity, no power. The gas stations wouldn't pump gas. It was just everything was dead, flattened. Immediately, the men and some women went out fishing, brought back a mess of fish. Everybody basically lived on the, at the churchyard grounds for a week just partying, playing ukulele, eating, eating, poi, fish. And then once we got our car going, my mom and I went driving around the island to see how the other communities were faring. Not so good because those were, that was Molochville. So there's this, at the north side of the island, the wealthiest community at that time was called Princeville. And it was just like, there was a mountain of, bologna sandwiches on white bread that the Red Cross had just brought in like days later and a line of people just pissed off and fighting with each other. (laughs) That that really was like showed the difference between how the indigenous community could roll. They knew their land. They knew their resources. And the people that relied on a money economy, on the imports coming in, just only knew how to bicker with one another in that situation. That's exactly what you said. All right, one more. Has the other shoe dropped yet? (laughs) Well, actually, in a way it has, listening to all these comments. I'm left with the very strong feeling that it's the individual that's going to reframe, not society. Society will reframe after each of us as individuals have moved out beyond ourselves and shared it. And what you are doing is so enlightening. What you're saying reminds me of something Greta Thunberg says, and she says, it's the individual and it's the leaders. It, it really is all of us. It's all this. We all have to be working all together all the time, no matter who we are. Um, yeah, not one or the other. But yeah, we can't leave ourselves out of it. And however, you, whatever you can do to ask yourself, what can I do? Just do what I do. I just talk to anybody that comes along. <laughs> well, thank you like, very much. Okay, they're building, they're wrapping up plutonium pit production at Lanel, Los Alamos National Labs. Each one of these pits, that's just the core of the weapon. That's not all the casings and all the other explosive material and all the missiles that they put them on, all this. Just the core of the weapon it costs $60 million to produce one of them, and they want to produce 30 per year within a few years and then ramp it up to 50. And one plutonium bit 
at $60 million, you could pay 700 nurses' salaries with that. And the cost of the entire nuclear weapons modernization program is recently calculated at approximately, we spend about 60 to $70 billion per year. 60 to $70 billion. And this is the whole weapons complex across the United States, all the different components. That's only nuclear weapons. That's not the whole military. That's not the whole Pentagon. That is, that's not the whole war machine. It's just the nuclear weapons program. 60 to $70 billion a year. We could end all homelessness in the United States for $20 billion. And we could end all hunger and feed every hungry adult and child in the United States for $25 billion. So we we could house the homeless, feed all the the hungry people, and still have plenty of money left over for the amounts that we're throwing. Yeah, we got $45 billion there. So, um, and that leaves another $20 billion or so um, to provide health care for people or whatever else you want to do. That's how much we're throwing into nuclear weapons when we already have uh, 1,800 approximately nuclear weapons that are sitting on missiles and pointed at Moscow and Beijing and ready to fire. So we got thousands of them. We have enough to destroy all life on Earth and many other planets combined, and they want to build more just because they want to spend money and defense contractors want to make money. And it has nothing to do with defense. It has nothing to do with our safety. And it has nothing to do with anything useful but except taking money away from basic needs that people have. Sally. The problem with reframing that I, I constantly come up against is the indoctrination of the people that America has a right, the God-given right to run the whole damn world. Yes. And because we're so much better than everybody else. It's, it's just drilled in us from the time you're, you're in kindergarten till, you're, till you get through your PhD. We are superior. And we don't cooperate with other people because we don't have to. They should do what we want them to do. I don't know how you reframe that. I've had personal experience recently with how broken the medical system is, the healthcare system, the education. If it gets to be so bad and people realize where's the money for this and they realize it's all going to picking fights with other people overseas, maybe that will reframe it. And we're going through unprecedented hard times in this country and Maybe it needs to get worse, but eventually we need to fix things up here. I mean, how, how else can it be? Thank you, everybody. You were just listening to Kuhan Pat Mander on Arms Race Equals Suicide Race. She spoke at the Albuquerque Center for Peace and Justice on June 25, 2023. Kuhan Pakmander is a journalist, filmmaker, author, and peace and environmental activist. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. 
We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Medea Benjamin, Arundhati Roy, Uma Shakur, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Kuhan Pakmander on Arms Race Equals Suicide Race, and for Norman Solomon's book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine, just call us, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free. Just call us at 1 800 444 1977. Special thanks to Bob Anderson and Stop the War Machine. Mike Swick recorded the program. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to CGSW's airing of Alternative Radio. For a full listing of episodes, head to the podcast tab on cgsw.com or search up Alternative Radio on the CGSW app. My name is Joel, and this month at CGSW is Mental Health Awareness. Today, I would like to talk to you about mental health resources for Indigenous people as someone who is part Blackfoot. Mental health is an important issue for Indigenous people in Canada. Historical trauma, cultural disconnect, oppression have resulted in higher rates of mental illness and suicide in Indigenous communities. It is important to promote cultural responsive mental health services. This means providing support and acknowledge the unique experience and perspectives of Indigenous people. Organizations such as Native Counseling Services of Alberta that provide programs and services designed and delivered for Indigenous people by Indigenous people in Alberta for over 50 years are a vital for helping and supporting the community. Traditional healing practices such as ceremony and connection with elders can be valuable resources for addressing mental health concerns. Another resource that is available is the Elbow River Healing Lodge through Alberta Services. The Elbow River Healing Lodge offers a full range of primary healthcare services and visiting specialists to First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples and their families. By raising awareness and promoting access to cultural appropriate mental health services, 
we can help support the well-being of Indigenous Blackfoot peoples in Canada. My name is Joel, and thank you for taking the time to listen to my segment on mental health awareness for Indigenous people. Thanks for listening to CJSW Originals. To listen back to this podcast episode and many more created by CJSW members, go to cjsw.com and click on the podcast tab or go to the CJSW.